0: This is Pastor Zach Bartles, and this is normally the time when you would hear a recording of our catechism class, uh, only something went horribly wrong, and it didn't get recorded. In fact, you hear me saying, test, test, into the microphone, and my standard mic check statement, which is good for testing sibilance, and then that's it. As soon as I've uh, found satisfaction that the mic is working and popped the thing in my pocket, I clearly turned off the mic and got 60 minutes of silence. Check, check. Sibilance, sibilance. Ashley Simpson wasn't singing on Saturday Night Live. It looks good. Okay. Wow. Which seems like, you know, a dumb joke in some direct-to-video Chris Kattan movie from the Audies. And it stinks because we had a great conversation, but you know what, I'm going to go ahead and try and walk you through the most of the content anyway. You won't hear people's questions and thoughts and insights, which is a shame, but you know, in God's good providence, maybe I had accidentally said some heresy or something. So here we are. We continue with question two, what rule has God given to direct us how we may glorify him? And the answer given is the word of God, which is contained in the scriptures of the old and new testaments is the only rule to direct us how we may glorify God and enjoy him. Uh, We had looked a couple weeks ago at a um, video that showed uh, a guy named Brian McLaren talking about a new view uh, of the scriptures. He painted rather a straw man, picture of the traditional view, viewing uh, the Bible as authoritative and the final authority, all we need for matters of life and doctrine and holiness. And he called that a constitution view. And then he said he thinks the the best view rather would be a library view where you enter into conversation with it and all questions are open and you don't just find out what you believe. You sort of, uh, I don't know, tell the Bible what you believe instead of it telling you. And so this past Sunday, we decided to look at the scriptures themselves uh, and recognizing this is a little bit circular because if the Bible's not authoritative, then what it declares about itself also might be said to, to not be authoritative. But at the same time, if the Bible is saying things that aren't true about itself, well, then why would we even read it? Why would we even care what it says if it contains falsehood and... The question becomes: Is is this thing consistent? Is it cohesive? And if so, how should we approach it? Of course, the real burden of proof is on someone like Brian McLaren as they try to change the approach and really flip it on its head. For two thousand years, the Church has viewed the Scriptures as binding. Uh, I mean, see Tertullian. Just start reading. Start reading the early Church Fathers. You're going to see. Uh, That everyone assumes the the Christian scriptures, the Old Testament, the New Testament, together, they are indeed binding for us as believers. Uh, Those who are trying to follow Jesus, those who have put their faith in him and been born again, the scriptures are central to becoming a believer and living as a believer. Uh, So we looked at a a good deal of scripture. Uh, Let me just read a couple for you. First of all, Proverbs 30, verses 5 and 6. Every word of God is flawless. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words or he will rebuke you and prove you a liar. Now, my question is, does that sound like a constitution view or a library view? And again, the... the, whole notion of labeling it a constitution uh, being used just to prosecute people uh, in the the court of the church. That whole thing is a, a very pejorative picture painted by uh, Mr. McLaren and, and others in his theological camp. Uh, but even just saying, okay, we'll use that as as the basis, I think it falls certainly more within a constitutional view. In fact, we might even say it goes further because a constitution can be amended and changed and added to. Uh, But this passage in Proverbs says, do not add to it, or God will rebuke you and prove you a liar. So, yes, the the Constitution view is inadequate, but not because it goes too far, rather because it doesn't go far enough in the authority that it gives to the Scriptures, or rather that it recognizes in the Scriptures, which they themselves claim. Uh, Deuteronomy 12, 32, see that you do all I command you, do not add to it or take away from it. Uh, once again, this is in the context of the law, uh, God's law given by inspiration, by, by holy word to Moses, and it's given to him for the enforcement of the old covenant. This is how the, the covenant is going to be observed by God's people. It is very much a legal document, and it cannot be added to or taken away from. You're probably thinking about uh, a passage in Revelation, if you're familiar with God's Word, that is uh, probably more well-known than either of those, that says essentially the same thing. In Revelation 22:18. this is the fourth to the last verse in the entire Bible. Uh, so we had way at the beginning in those, those first books, the books of the law, later in what we call the writings, which are the, the poetic writings, the wisdom literature, uh, which is what Proverbs is part of. We have a similar statement, and then in Revelation twenty two eighteen, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book, and if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. Heck, I'll just read to the end. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. If we're gonna accept the promise that he's coming again soon, if we're going to accept uh, his grace, which is uh, offered to all of us, we've got to accept that his word is, as it says two verses before these things, uh, authoritative and that it is final and uh, it's not a conversation that we can, quote, enter into and and these kind of fuzzy, very modern, touchy-feely words that are often trotted out that don't really mean anything Um, hard and fast. They're not nailed down in their meaning. Uh, This kind of funny play saying, oh, we don't stand above scripture or beneath it. We enter into it." it. It doesn't mean anything. And that's probably okay as far as the target demographic for those teachings, because they don't want the Bible to mean anything solid either. They want it to be kind of a tool that can be used within any worldview rather than a book that establishes for us a uniquely Christian worldview. But As we are in the context of this uh, question in the Catechism, our understanding is certainly that it is the latter, not the former. This is establishing for us how we view the world, how we understand who we are and who God is, and it's not subject to and open to our continual revisions, and it's not to be wrapped around whatever our culture says in the moment and whatever our cultural values are today, um only to be kind of peeled off and wrapped around different ones tomorrow. It's not going to evolve. It's not going to change. We believe that these these words are not just the words of wise men and women, but these things are actually the word of God and they are supernatural. And not in the sort of loose and limp sense where they're they're kind of jelly and we just grab them and, and squeeze them into arm. But rather where they take us and can form us into the, the very image of Christ, uh, making us more and more like him, giving us a heart like his. And so we do want to be, in a sense, beneath God's word, uh, subject to it, recognizing that God gave it to us for us, for our own good. This is going to feed into question three, which we'll look at next week, uh, just as a little foreshadowing it is what do the scriptures principally teach and the answer given is the scriptures principally teach what man is to believe concerning God and what duties God requires of man and so certainly it's not up to our interpretation in any given moment Uh, these are things according to scripture uh, that were actually ordained before the foundations of the earth How serious is this stuff? Well, very serious. Galatians 1, 8 and 9 says, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preached to you, let him be eternally condemned. As we have already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let him be eternally condemned. That is very strong language. It is not the language... Uh, of a document that wants to be sort of a helpful boost to you wherever you stand uh, in in this moment, wherever your journey takes you, <laughs> rather it is words of of eternal damnation for anyone who would try to alter the message of god 's word. It shows that that there is indeed righteous wrath stored up for those who would alter the gospel and, and fit it to their own desires. Uh, And, of course, we also find that doing that sort of thing, uh, kind of detaching God's word from the historical foundation that that grounds it and makes it unmoving, steadfast unmoving, um, is to make us pitied above all men. These things are rooted not in some ethereal ideas, uh, spiritual notions, but rather in history, that Christ died and rose again fact, that historical fact, the doctrine is built out and handed down to us, Moses and Solomon and the apostle John say, anyone who would change it will incur the wrath of God. St. Paul says, without this, you are hopeless. And then also says, whoever would change this uh, and and preach a different and alternate gospel other than what you have received will be eternally condemned. We come now to a question that is not um, posed in the Baptist Catechism because it's not in the Westminster Shorter, and I'm flipping in my Reformed Confessions Harmonized, uh, which was edited by the great Sinclair Ferguson. Uh, I would probably get a hold of this if, if I were you, if you're interested in these confessions and catechisms. Uh, Baker Books put it out, and it's just spectacular. Uh, and when we flip over Question two, we see that the heading of the Holy Scriptures, and we see that there is plenty laid out in the Belgic Confession, the Heidelberg Catechism, the Second Helvetic Confession, the Canons of Dart, the Westminster Confession, and the Shorter and Larger Catechisms about the Holy Scriptures. Obviously, this is fundamental. Um, But something we see in the Westminster Confession of Faith and therefore in the London Baptist, the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith, uh, is a listing of what books are to be included. Under the name of Holy Scripture or the Word of God written are now contained all the books of the Old and New Testament, which are these, then lists out the 39 books of the Old Testament and the 27 books of the New Testament, all which are given by inspiration of God to be the rule of faith and life. Uh, And you see next to that a big white space uh, under the Westminster Shorter and larger catechism. Rather simply to say the Old and New Testaments, which are the word of God, seemed apparently adequate to the Westminster divines who first laid these things out. If you had questions about which books were contained in those things, you could go and read the, the full confession. But teaching children, they could say it's the Old Testament and the New Testament and... That would be good enough. Uh, Not the Apocrypha, which are uh, other later books, many Bibles today, whether in the Roman Catholic tradition or even uh, sometimes in Lutheran uh, churches, um, the original Luther Bible, the original King James Bible would have uh, translations of the Apocrypha in between the Old and New Testament uh, showing that these extra books, they're of historical import. They kind of fill in some of what happened between the Old Testament and the New Testament, the so-called 400 years of silence, but uh, understood in the evangelical tradition, certainly in our Baptist faith as being not canonical, not God-breathed. Useful, but, but not God-breathed. Of course, some people have suggested that the apostles, as they wrote the New Testament didn't recognize that there ever would be a New Testament or that these writings of theirs would be seen someday as being on par authoritatively with the Old Testament. And therefore we should reject them and and maybe view these New Testament writings as commentary and the Old Testament as being the real foundation. Others more recently like Andy Stanley have suggested, no, just hang on to the New Testament and unhitch from the Old Testament which is basically a theological clown car slamming into a dumpster fire at 500 miles an hour. And our catechism protects us from that. If we would read it and read the scriptures about the scriptures and understand that this is all rooted in historic truth, the faith once for all handed down to the saints, then we won't be stuck here. There is in the New Testament an understanding that there is, of course, a a tradition, a New Testament tradition, including the writings of the apostles, a gospel that is being handed down, and that it is to be above all things prized as the, the message of salvation. We we read in Jude. Let me just start reading here at the beginning of his, his letter. Jude, uh, verse 1, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied in you. into license, as St. Peter says, or into sensuality here, saying, oh, as long as there's grace and love, there's, there's no need for all this other stuff. And in order to push that message, you have to turn people's attention away from the scriptures or somehow demote the scriptures so that they are not authoritative and they cannot overrule what you're teaching, the, the traditions of men that are that are displacing God's word, the faith once for all handed down to the saints. So what does the New Testament say about the New Testament? I mean, we we don't even have to make a case for the New Testament holding up the Old Testament as canonical, as scripture, as authoritative. Um, But I mean, I would point to a passage like 2 Peter 3, verses 15 and 16, in which Peter recognizes the writings of Paul as scripture. He says, bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him. He writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. Did you hear that? As they do the other scriptures. And that's not some unique, uh, translation. I mean, the King James, the ESV, the NASB, the NIV, the NRSV, they all they all say the other scriptures because there really is no other way to translate le pas grafas. Grafé, scripture, writing, um, it's it's very much a, a technical term when used in this way. Loipos means like the rest, the remaining. I remembered it uh, when I was learning Greek as somebody like lopping off uh, a, a piece of meat and then pushing aside what was left, what was remaining. Um, so it, it means the rest, the other scriptures. So we have some of the scriptures uh, which are written by Paul and then we have other scriptures. In turn, there's an example of Saint Paul quoting Luke as scripture. He says in first Timothy 518, for the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads the grain and the laborer is worthy of his wages. Here he's quoting both Deuteronomy and Jesus, like side by side, as if they're equal in authority. Uh, And one, of course, is, is like commentary on the other, but it's Jesus commentary on it and it's presented as the word of God. And so that's quoting Jesus from the gospel of Luke. Uh, Luke, of course, a companion of Paul. They all had together, perhaps, this Jesus tradition that, that uh, Mark and, and that all the evangelists drew on, as well as Paul drawing on it with, with statements like, uh, it's better to give than to receive. And so he refers to the Gospels, or at least one of the Gospels, as Scripture. There are plenty of other passages we could look at uh, under this heading, um, 1 Thessalonians 213 Uh, 1 Corinthians 14, 37 and 38, writing to you a command of the Lord. Revelation 1, 1 to 3, you know, these explicit claims of a book's authority being divine. But suffice to say, while they didn't have a perfect picture of what the New Testament canon would ultimately look like, there was certainly an understanding that there was a New Testament canon. And of course, there is great evidence that that the earliest Christian church had a a concept of a New Testament canon. Canon forming new writings were being accepted as Holy scripture. They were being passed around from church to church copies made. And so when the full Bible becomes the full Bible, it's not by fiat, certainly not um, Constantine saying, here's the books that we're going to include as, as someone had asked about in class on Sunday. Uh, But rather it, it happens naturally, very naturally and without resistance because people were already fully accepting of the apostles' writings As holy scripture. I think another uh, interesting text to look at here on this topic is Ephesians 2 19 and 20 uh, in which we read, Consequently you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. Now the, the keywords there being apostles and prophets, we see throughout Jesus' ministry examples of how um, the Old Testament wasn't called the Old Testament yet. It was, <laughs> it was called the, the Scriptures, or more frequently, it was referred to as um, the Law and the Prophets. There, what you really have is a threefold uh, collection in the Old Testament. It's the Law, the Prophets, and the Writings. Um, and it's often uh, shortened to Tanakh. Uh, for the, the Hebrew words, Torah, Nevi'im, Ketuvim, um, Torah meaning teaching, or sometimes people will say law, probably teaching is a better um, gloss for that. Uh, Nevi'im, by the way, I know no one can see me because I'm in my office alone right now, and I'm like gesturing these three columns uh, because I talk with my hands. Uh, Nevi'im being uh, the prophet's. And Ketuvim it means writings, uh, the writings. And interestingly, I, I'm not going to expound on it now, but if you look at how, in, even today in a Jewish Bible, how those three headings, uh, how the books fall into those three categories, you'll probably be surprised uh, what is considered what. But um, often you'll hear, uh, you know, you had the writings of Moses, uh, which is you know, the law, or, or here's the greatest command, and here's the the second greatest, and on these, all the law and the prophets rest. So law and prophets kind of standing in for that whole Old Testament. And sometimes it's just called the law. And sometimes it's just called the prophets. And Jesus is often accused of misquoting uh, which prophet said what. And he'll have said Isaiah. And the reason is because, again, they would put everything together and shorthand was just to say Isaiah. Isaiah said this when really what we mean is it was in the scroll that starts with Isaiah. It says Isaiah at the top. All that to say, when we read the foundation of the Apostles and Prophets, we are talking about the Old Testament and the New Testament. The teachings of the Prophets, which here, by way of Synecdoche, stands in for uh, the Law of the Prophets and the Writings, the whole Old Testament, like we frequently see. And then Apostles means the, the teaching of the New Covenant. So we have the Old and the New Covenant, and these are the foundation. And that's something, again, that continues all the way to the end, all the way to the book of Revelation. Uh, we just looked at Revelation 22, the last chapter of the whole Bible. Uh, go back one to Revelation 21. We're still way at the end, and we're reading about the new Jerusalem. It had a wall great and high, and had 12 gates, and at the gates 12 angels, and names written thereon, which are the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. And then the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and in them the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So the notion of the apostles as fundamental, a foundation for God's people, it's built right into the Word of God itself. It's not something that was later on decided on and imposed on. Like, like a retcon, that's a nerdy reference, but like... Um, when I used to read... Well, let's say I used to read comics when I was a kid uh, and then just say that, yeah, you're still a kid when you're like 25. Uh, and I used to read these things and I stopped reading them after like 15 or 20 years of being an avid reader because they decided to retcon. They, they said uh, DC Comics uh, did a thing where they were like, okay, starting over. All the story you thought you knew, we're changing it up. You know, We're, we're reestablishing the origins. We're, we're coming in with this whole reboot. That's not... What happens to make the New Testament equal in authority to the old? Because the New Testament itself, the documents themselves, see themselves that way. Perhaps Paul didn't know that his, uh, you know, first and third letter or second and fourth letter to the Corinthians would be included in the canon, but the other ones wouldn't. But, and I know this is kind of becoming broken record territory, Uh, we do see clearly that the early church and the apostles themselves had an understanding that uh, they were speaking the word of God, uh, and that's built on uh, all sorts of teachings of Christ. Uh, What he told them about how they would have supernatural recall, how they would have the Holy Spirit, uh, and all of these things kind of weave together into what becomes the Christian Bible. In fact, if we keep reading the next two verses in Ephesians 2, uh, after apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone, in him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord, and in him you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. We see that the church is built on the scriptures, not vice versa. There are some churches and, and, and church traditions where they will say that uh, the traditions of the church and the scriptures, so the oral tradition or the uh, kind of uh, conciliar tradition is equal in authority to the scriptures, which, and this is of course perfect for Reformation Day, which is when I'm recording this. Um, they'll say like, our, our church gave you the scripture, so you should trust our church. And we see in, in passages like this, no, the, the scriptures are the foundation for the church not the other way around and if you look down deeper 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 ultimately you find christ the chief cornerstone it's all built on jesus we don't worship the scriptures we don't venerate the scriptures as somehow deific themselves no if you want to venerate the word the word is made flesh and dwelt amongst us jesus is the the chief cornerstone and he gave us the word of god uh, so that the church could be built upon him in the right way, uh, so that it's built on the rock, so that when storms come, the whole thing doesn't just get flattened uh, by the winds, but rather can stand firm on the rock. The history of the canon, uh, my wife taught a whole year-long, almost, uh, class on this uh, at our church not long ago, and it's a really fascinating and in-depth topic that, that, to be done justice, has to be has to be a long study. I'm not going to give you a long study. I'm just going to just mention a few things. Again, it wasn't at the Council of Nicaea. Um, not not with the ordering of uh, you know the initial Bibles via Eusebius uh, that Constantine somehow. Established the bible that 's just not the case. Uh, Irenaeus quotes and cites twenty one books of the new testament he 's only missing uh, Philemon Hebrews, James, second Peter, third John, and Jude, and you might say, "Wow, that sounds like an awful lot, but with the exception of Hebrews, those are really short books, and so that 's most of the New Testament by the early 200s, Origin of Alexandria lists all of the books in the current New Testament except James, second Peter and Second John and Third John. So again, that's a very, very little like percentage of the New Testament. Uh, and he also included uh, The Shepherd of Hermas, which is a book that uh, a lot of times seems to be lumped in with the New Testament canon. One of those almost made it kind of things. Again, I don't really have time to get into all of that and that, that process. There are some really good books on the topic. Um, I can see the spines of them on my shelf. Hold on, I'm going to get up. Here it is. How We Got the Bible by Neil Lightfoot, uh, also put out by Baker Books. I would very much recommend that. Uh, also by Baker. It's almost like my wife works for Baker and I get a whole bunch of free books. Um, check out A Visual History of the English Bible. There's also The Visual History of the King James Bible, The More Recent uh, Centuries. And, and and then there's a book by Craig Evans and Emmanuel Tove exploring the origins of the Bible, uh, which I have not read in its entirety, but I found useful Uh, when I looked into a few chapters of it for a class I was preparing. All right, back to my desk. Okay, so fast forward uh, another 150 years in his Easter letter. This is in 367. uh, Athanasius, the Bishop of Alexandria, gave a list of exactly the same books as what would become the New Testament canon, even using the word canonized to describe them. Under Augustine, which is late 4th century, so late 300s, synods in North Africa confirmed all the books of the canon, as well as deuterocanonical books, meaning the the Apocrypha, uh, because of their inclusion in the Septuagint. And that brings up a point I don't know that I mentioned uh, when I first brought up the Apocrypha. The Old Testament Apocrypha is what you will sometimes find between the Old and New Testaments uh, in a Christian Bible. Um, For example, uh, some very old King James Bibles containing them. The New Testament Apocrypha is a, a title given to uh, non-canonical books like uh, the Gospel of Marcion, uh, the Gospel of Thomas, which brought you the famously bad movie Stigmata in the late 90s. Um, there are a bunch of books that kind of fall under the category of New Testament Apocrypha. That's that's not what we're talking about when we say the Apocrypha. The, those aren't, you know, the Gospel of Philip or the, the Gnostic Apocalypse of Peter are not found in Catholic or Orthodox or Protestant Bibles anywhere. Um, these These are not part of Christianity at all. But Augustine included the Old Testament Apocrypha because they were included in the Greek translation of the Bible, the Septuagint. And it was really easy to translate them into Greek because they were already Greek. Um, they were written in Greek. That's part of the reason they're rejected as being too new, uh, is they don't seem to be translated from Hebrew or Aramaic. So we're talking about books like Tobit, Judith, uh, Ecclesiasticus, or, or uh, that's also called the, the Wisdom of Sirach um Baruch first and second Maccabees which are awesome I mean these 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 are really cool uh books to read and honestly there's very little in them that contradicts what we would consider orthodox Christian doctrine um the the praying for the dead is is often uh drawn from the the books of Maccabees Uh, And that's basically taking a command from something that's descriptive, uh, making a prescriptive out of a descriptive, or an imperative out of an indicative, saying this is what happened, and then saying, oh no, we should pray for the dead, and then from that saying, well, if we pray for the dead, there must be something we're praying for, and before long we've got purgatory. Um, I don't think that really poisons 1st and 2nd Maccabees. Uh, I believe they're true stories, although certainly we're lionizing certain characters and telling it from a point of view. Uh, And it's important information for you to have if you want to fully understand the New Testament. And so Augustine includes the Old Testament Apocrypha in his uh, list of the canon, simply because it was part of most of the copies of the Septuagint. And complicating matters a little bit is that most of the Old Testament quotes in the New Testament. Uh, so when Jesus or the Apostles quotes the Old Testament, it seems to match the Septuagint. So when, when Paul, who's you know, writing in Greek, quotes the Old Testament, he doesn't translate it himself. He goes with that Greek translation, the Septuagint. So you see why Augustine might have included those books. At the end of the day, though, there's not an official canonical list Uh, established by a council that is claiming to be an ecumenical council, meaning a council speaking for the whole church uh, that says these are the books of the Bible and none others. That actually doesn't happen until the Council of Trent, which is, uh, I think, 1546 is when it begins. And so the Council of Trent is a Catholic council, counter-reformation, going against the Reformation, uh, also called the Catholic Reformation sometimes. Uh, They list out their books of the Bible. So they include the Apocrypha, and then we see the 39 Articles of the Church of England, 1563, the Westminster Confession of Faith, of course, 1647, which is Presbyterian. And then 1677 uh, kind of tweaked for us Baptists uh, in the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith and the Synod of Jerusalem in 1672. Uh, the Greek Orthodox Church lays out their their canons. And so these, these early councils are always laying out doctrine in response to error and heresy. As hot-button issues come up because there's wonky teaching about them, that's when an ecumenical council will be called and and come together and the the canons of this council will uh, be seen as authoritative. Pretty much every church under the broad uh, umbrella of Christendom, Christianity, uh, accepts these first seven ecumenical councils or at least the first four as reliable and and, and submits to what they say or agrees with what they say anyway. Uh, But, you know, that didn't come up. Uh, we, we, you know, you, you have things like Arianism, uh, the teaching that, that Jesus is the highest created being rather than uncreated and, and God himself. Um, and you have, uh, that that hangs around a long time. You have issues of the Trinity. You have Christ and his divine nature. And, you know, how many wills does Christ have? So these things that, that are uh, being taught falsely, uh, prompt response by the church. And so apparently it's not until... Uh, the Reformation in the 16th century, that scripture itself and what what really is scripture, let's lay this out, uh, takes front and center stage. uh, And that makes sense, right? Luther with sola scriptura, uh, the Bible alone as our final authority. And, you know, you look at Luther debating Thomas Eck Every time Luther makes his points by re- referring to scripture, citing scripture, Eck makes his points by citing uh, popes and councils, and they both think they won. Uh, one of them is viewing tradition as coequal with scripture. And so when Luther stands before the Diet of Worms, he declares, if, I, I will not repent or recant anything I've taught unless you can show me from scripture and plain reason. For I trust not in, oh, I'm going to butcher this, but uh, it's I trust not in popes and councils for they have often erred and contradicted one another. Uh, 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 paraphrasing, but I think that's about it. He's not about to just trust the church to tell him what to believe. He is going to say, let's make sure the church is teaching what the scriptures say, because the church is built on the scriptures, not vice versa, because the authoritative thing is God's holy word. That's the authority he gave us. That's ordained as the means by which we know God's will. Okay, so if, if you're listening to this at night, I'm going to um, go ahead and, and uh, kind of sing you off to sleep here with a couple of passages from some confessions because I think they're important. And again, like I said, this issue isn't really addressed fully in the smaller catechism. Everything isn't addressed in these these catechisms, especially not the the shorter ones that are meant for uh, just an introduction to the faith. Uh, if you want to dig deeper, you go into the confessions themselves. Um, I want to just remind you, before we close, that scripture is necessary and sees itself as necessary. Uh, let me bring up 1 Corinthians 3.18. That's one of the Verses of the Bible I haven't memorized yet. You know, there's, there's just still a few there I haven't committed to memory. Um, let's see, the ESV. It says, Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, He catches the wise in their craftiness. So God's wisdom isn't the wisdom of the world. And for us to kind of say, well, the Bible's just this library. I can go in and check out books that I want. Uh, You know, when there's a library, you're never expected to check out every book and read all of them, and you certainly don't accept what all of them say. That's not even close to the view of Scripture that we find in Scripture. Rather, we need the Bible. It's necessary, all of it, the full counsel of God, because God's wisdom is folly to man and vice versa. We're not going to find it looking to culture. We're not going to find it, as the church is the dog wagged by the tail saying, oh, no, 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 well, I, I don't want to upset academia. I don't want to upset whatever kind of morality police are out there uh, on Twitter right now telling me what I should be ashamed of saying or believing. So I will bend God's word around whatever current cultural mores or values or concerns there are and pretend that's what the Bible is really talking about. No, we need the Bible because it tells us what God's wisdom actually is. And God's word is also all sufficient. First John one three, St. John tells us that he is delivering to us in this writing, in this letter, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the father and with his son, Jesus Christ. So he's, he's an eyewitness, And even though he lived a long time and Jesus said, hey, it's none of your business, Peter, if I want him to live till I return. He didn't live until Jesus returned. So he wrote down what he saw and we need it. It's all sufficient. It's necessary. So let me read then from uh, the London Baptist Confession of Faith. This is uh, section one, chapter one of the Holy Scriptures. So it starts with the Holy Scriptures and that's on purpose because that's the foundation of everything else. Here's paragraph six. "...the whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life, is either expressly set down or necessarily contained in the Holy Scriptures, unto which nothing at any time is to be added, whether by new revelation of the Spirit or traditions of men. Nevertheless, we acknowledge the inward illumination of the Spirit of God to be necessary for the saving understanding of such things as are revealed in the Word." And that there are some circumstances concerning the worship of God and government of the church common to human actions and societies, which are to be ordered by the light of nature and Christian prudence, according to the general rules of the word, which are always to be observed. And so we see here that, uh, well, there's not going to be more books added to the Bible. There is certainly an, an acknowledgement that we can't, in our natural minds, that our, our human wills uh, find ultimate truth Uh, and follow God adequately even by reading the Scriptures. We need the Holy Spirit indwelling us to illuminate the truth to us. So the Holy Spirit plays a central role here Um, and often Baptists, even or maybe especially Baptists who hold really strong to the London Baptist Confession of Faith, want to downplay the role of the Spirit. The, The confession does not do that. Not in the least. If anything It emphasizes the role of the spirit. And then the next paragraph, paragraph seven, all things in scripture are not alike plain in themselves, nor alike clear unto all. Yet those things which are necessary to be known, believed and observed for salvation are so clearly propounded and opened in some place of scripture or other that not only the learned, but the unlearned in a due use of ordinary means may attain to a sufficient understanding of them. So that that tells us then that even though all of Scripture is God-breathed and useful. It's not all equally useful. Uh, every verse. So, for example, you know, a verse right in the middle of a long genealogy in the Old Testament. Or a passage that tells us the the details of how many days you have to be outside the camp if you have this particular skin condition while the Israelites were wandering in the desert is not going to be equally important to you today uh, as a passage that says, uh, like Romans 10, 9, uh, confess with your lips that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. Um, And and some of it's harder to understand than other stuff. Even Peter acknowledged that while writing scripture that Paul's scriptures were sometimes difficult to understand. Uh, and it took some wisdom and And people um, could even, if they had the wrong heart going in, could, could twist them and use them for their own means, uh, for, for what they wanted to say, rather than what, what uh, the Holy Spirit was saying through the pen of Paul. But those things which are necessary for salvation, meaning the gospel, what Jesus did on our behalf, even the unlearned, even the uneducated can easily understand using ordinary means, meaning hearing or reading God's word can understand. And there are so many stories. Uh, just go to a Gideon's lunch. They do these, I love how old school they are. They they send out these paper invitations, pastor, come to this, um, pastor appreciation lunch and they'll have a speaker and you'll go there and everybody's, you know, wearing khaki pants with, pleats and, and, you know, blue sport coats. And, and, uh, and some guy gets up and he tells all these stories about people who were handed a new Testament or a full Bible. Uh, and they, you know, maybe one guy was on a submarine. He did not believe in God at all, but he had nothing else to do, but sit there and read, you know, you don't, even today, you don't get a uh, good reception on your, your smartphone from however many leagues under the sea. So he had this, he had this new Testament. He started reading it. And he got saved i mean we, we you you have i mean there's just there's endless stories about this so so god's word is complicated and and um, so god's word is in many places complicated and, and difficult to understand and by the the day before you die you won't have even gotten close to scratching the surface of exhausting all that it contains um but those things which are necessary um, you, you can understand simply by reading those things that are necessary for salvation. Uh, so we can use God's word, knowing it won't return void. We can proclaim it. Uh, and it is, it is just a wonderful gift that we've been given. Now, let, so let me uh, actually close by reading uh, from the Belgic Confession. Belgic is a great word. Article 7, the sufficiency of the Holy Scriptures to be the only rule of faith. This is a confession from the year 1561. We believe that those holy scriptures fully contain the will of God, and that whatsoever man ought to believe unto salvation is sufficiently taught therein. For since the whole manner of worship which God requires of us is written in them at large, it is unlawful for any anyone, though an apostle, to teach otherwise. than we are now taught in the holy scriptures, nay, though it were an angel from heaven, as the apostle Paul saith, For since it is forbidden to add unto or take away anything from the word of God, it doth thereby evidently appear that the doctrine thereof is most perfect and complete in all respects. Neither do we consider of equal value any writing of men, however holy these men may have been, with those divine scriptures. Nor ought we to consider custom, or the great multitude, or antiquity, or succession of times and persons, or councils, decrees, or statutes, as of equal value with the truth of God." For the truth is above all, for all men are themselves liars. If that sounds really harsh, uh, there's a little footnote that points us to Psalm 62.10, and it could point us elsewhere as well. And more vain than vanity itself. Therefore we reject with all our hearts whatsoever doth not agree with this infallible rule, which the apostles have taught us, saying, Try the spirits, whether they are of God. Likewise. If they come any unto you and bring not this doctrine, receive him not into your house. And that, of course, is from uh, the second epistle of John. And that may be a great kind of tension and uh, uh, point to end on and think on, that in this document that we are studying, which is not scripture itself, the second London Baptist Confession of Faith and the accompanying catechism, uh, which we see as a faithful summary and is very useful and helpful, uh, and we with Spurgeon would say, of course you are not such wiseacres as to think or say that you can expound Scripture without assistance from the works of divines and learned men who have labored before you in the field of exposition. At the same time, none of them, no matter how old or even no matter how straight of a line you can point from them back to the apostles, none of them are equal to Scripture. Scripture alone is our final authority in all matters of faith and practice. And what a good point to end on, on this Reformation Day. Uh, You know what I like to do on Reformation Day to celebrate the Reformers? I put candy in a bowl and I hand it to kids when they knock on my door. Um, And so I'm going to go do that. And I hope that uh, even though we missed out on the discussion from the class, this has been helpful. And uh, hopefully I won't turn off the mic next week when I put it in my pocket and uh, you will be able to hear the entirety of the class next time.